And welcome to another Model Railroad Hobbyist Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and joining me today is uh, Ken Rickman, the author of the cover article, MRH This Month, which is Scratch, Build, a Steam Locomotive, and Styrene. Welcome, Ken. Well, thanks for having me. Okay. Now, I saw in a little bit of uh, bio that they put with the article that, like a lot of us, you got started with a train set. Uh, you know, at an early age before we could do early, uh, you know, advanced algebra and so forth. How did that, getting that initial train set and stuff, how did that progress? Well, I, I had the uh, typical Lionel train set under the Christmas tree at about two years old. And I played with Lionel's up through, you know, all, all through my childhood. And when I started getting in my teens, I wanted something a little more realistic, something I wanted to have a little more fun with it, so I started getting into HO scale modeling, and just over time, kept finding that I had no money and I had things I wanted, so I started building things, um, and that's sort of been the story ever since. I, I always want more than I can afford. I think that's a human condition there. So. <laughs> it, and, it probably is. And we just buy more than we need. Just. Buy more than we need. I threw away, or I didn't throw away. I went through the cabinets out on the garage where a lot of the cars are stored, and I've got, I don't know, nine or ten I'm taking to the hobby shop to do a consignment sale. And then there's just junk there. We collect junk that we're never going to use. I've I've done that, and I, I've finally learned um, one of the joys of, of prototype modeling, I suppose, is I force myself to only focus on certain things. And I've I've sold off quite a bit of equipment over the years. Okay, see that's a discipline that you know I don't have quite that much. I mean I'm not going to go out and buy a German railways prototype, but in the 70s and of course 80s and very prevalent now, where you get pool power and run through units. I mean you can justify having a, a Canadian National Wide Hood SD40 on a on a lash up of Santa Fe. I mean, it does happen. I've seen it come through Arizona, but which only feeds the fact that we collect stuff we're never going to really use. True. Some I just gave away and the other stuff that was 30 years old and plastic becomes so brittle, I just, it went into the recycling bin. Uh, who were the uh, early influences? I remember I was amazed when I got in the hobby of, by John Allen, who, uh, who grabbed your attention and maybe spurred some of the interest? Well, I can't really uh, name names. I, I I didn't have access to any hobby shops uh, and didn't have any of the uh, hobby magazines. What I did have were some of the uh, the uh, early modeling books. I say early; they were my early modeling books, uh, model railway encyclopedias, and so forth. And some of the most of them were British, and I think the Brits have always had a little more of a scratch building and kit bashing mentality than we have. And so a lot of the books got heavily into that fairly quickly. I was always inspired by that. So that's. I remember one in particular that always stood out in my head. It showed painting a um, a British Railways coach, and it showed all the parts masked off. And of course, being printed in the 70s, they were a lot of drawings instead of photographs. I didn't realize it was a drawing of masking tape covering things like the buffers, I remember specifically. I thought somebody had carved them out of clay. 
And I always wanted to be able to do that, to, to take that lump and turn it into something prototypical. Oh, okay. And even though I, when I learned finally what it was, the inspiration still stuck with me. Okay. Tell me about your interest in both, I guess, the real Danville Western and then I think you've got a website out there on this too. I do. Um, <laughs> it it, it kind of came about in, in a backwards fashion, I suppose. I had come up with a track plan for a spare bedroom, and I was searching for a prototype that fit the track plan. Um, and a friend of mine, a friend and coworker, had suggested that it looked very similar to the Danville Western, which is it's a territory that we work on occasionally. And he knew just just enough about it to recognize a little bit of the ter- territory and say, well, this that looks similar. Sounded good to me, so I started researching. And I've always enjoyed research, uh, historical, really anything in history, especially railroad history. So that sort of took on a life of its own. And when I found out there was almost no information on the Danville and Western, um, as far as collected into a single source, lots of little bits and pieces here and there, I started collecting it, and I felt that a, felt that a website was the easiest way to collect my own data. And I just decided as long as I was doing it, I might as well share it. Okay. So now, the Danville and Western, that was a part of the Southern? Southern Railway had a habit of owning a lot of little short lines. They were sort of southern, and then they were sort of their own entity. They had some autonomy. They they did their own thing, and yet southern completely owned them. Uh, the Danville Western is one of them. That they they were started, of course, as their own railroad, and Southern Railway picked it up right around the turn of the century. Let it be its own thing, and yet shared a lot of southern equipment. Uh, southern They had trackage rights over southern for five miles through Danville, Virginia. Um, so they, and that's the other part of how I, I became interested in it. I've been interested in Southern Railway for a long time, and I was looking for something Southern themed. And the Danville and Western really worked well for me because it it is Southern Railway, and I know enough about it that I I could kind of hit the ground running. But it also being an autonomous short line, you can really justify a lot of creative things that you can't get away with. On a, on a model of Southern Railway proper. Okay. Now, the Danville Western, was it a bridge line? Did it have, uh, you know, a lot of traffic originating on the line? What kind of operation was it? It was originally planned to be a bridge line between Danville, Virginia, and somewhere in the neighborhood of Bristol, Tennessee. And it would have connected the, the coal fields and um, all of the Western traffic would have brought that in through Danville and eventually on either to Richmond or Norfolk. However, they ran out of money trying to cross mountains, and it ended up being a little short line to nowhere. Um, It ran from Danville about 76 miles into Stewart, Virginia, and all it really did was carry a little bit of uh, some passengers and agricultural traffic into fairly rural portions of western Virginia. So when did it... Did it just become abandoned? Was it fully, you said it was wholly owned by Southern. 
did they absorb it into their operations and have become a you know a fully functioning southern branch line in about 1950 southern conglomerated several of their short lines in this region and and brought them in under the carolina northwestern name it was operated as the carolina northwestern until the late 50s early 60s when that was rolled into southern railway and it's now the the western half of the line was abandoned in 1942 between Martinsville, Virginia, and Stewart. The remainder is still operated today under Norfolk Southern. Because I noticed on your website that uh, where you've collected photos of equipment and stuff, both real and model from other modelers and stuff, that I saw some first-generation Alcos, so I figured it had to go at least you know, through the 50s, maybe early 60s on that. The Danville Western was one of the uh, early purchasers of the uh, one of the one of the first railroads to fully dieselize. In 1948, they purchased two RS2s and basically scrapped their steam locomotive fleet at that point. So you tell it's a pretty small operation; they only needed two locomotives. Uh, they then, in late 49, early 50 sent those off to the Carolina Northwestern and purchased two RS3s. They stayed lettered for Danville Western for six months or a year at most before the whole railroad was rolled into Carolina Northwestern. So they they completed these lives in 1948 and disappeared by 1950. Okay. Uh, What is your website address so the listeners can go look? Uh, You'll have to give me a moment. I have to look it up. It's it's a it's a long it, URL. It is. Um, David Bott shares web web space with me, so I don't have to pay separately for it. It is. Do you, do you want, I'm sorry. Do you want the HTTP as well? That most people presume that. Uh, just okay. There is no www. Okay. It is southern railway dot railfan dot net slash dw. And for listeners, you'll when you go to the site, it's like the first part of it is on the historical information that Ken is collecting on the railroad. Then you get, uh, as you scroll down, then you'll come to the modeling section. And that's where, like I mentioned, there'll be photos of some other uh, Danville uh, modelers, their uh, diesel power and so forth in there. And then you finally come down to in-progress pictures of what's Ken doing with his model railroading. I want to uh, put this in perspective because you also work for uh, the Norfolk Southern, correct? Yes, I do. Okay. And how long have you been with the uh, NS? I've been there over 14 years now. Okay. Good grief. You must have started right out of the crib. I started at 18 years old. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. How did you come to work for the Norfolk Southern? What brought that about? Well, growing up, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be an engineer. I toyed with all sorts of options, and that's all I wanted to do. So when I turned 18, my father looked at me and said, either you're going to school or you're going to work. And he took me to the library and said, here, go find every railroad you can think of. Send them a letter, tell them you want a job. 
Most of them sent nice letters saying, thank you, we're not interested. Uh, Norfolk Southern sent me a, a phone number. Here, call this number. All our jobs are listed. I called it. There happened to be one in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I didn't even know where that was, but he said, you're going. So off I went. <laughs> and okay. they actually hired me. <laughs> it turns out that the, the folks that, that hired me said, if this kid's willing to drive 400 miles to get a job, he must want to work. And I've worked for them ever since. Okay, so you, your first location was 400 miles away from the home? I, at the time, I lived in Huntsville, Alabama. And okay. I, I actually started training with Norfolk Southern at their center in Atlanta. My father found me in an apartment here in uh, Salisbury, North Carolina. I didn't even know where it was. So I, I, I worked for the railroad for three weeks before I'd even moved to North Carolina. Okay, so the training was done in Atlanta. Yes. Okay. Now, what what were your what was your first job there at uh, NS? I I was a conductor. Um, okay, train crew from day one. Yes. If you if you go into train service, you're either a conductor. Well, you you can't be an engineer starting off. You have to be a conductor and work your way up to engineer. Your dad. So now you've moved up to North Carolina from. Alabama. Now, just tell me, what does, you know, in the context of uh, today's world, what did you do as a conductor? Was it a yard, road job, what? I worked a little bit of everything. I worked uh, Linwood Yard, which is, uh, some folks may be familiar with uh, Southern Railway's old Spencer Yard, their largest uh, largest yard in the system. Uh, in 1979, they moved to Linwood, just up the road. And uh, I worked out of there. I worked there on various yard jobs for a year. I transferred and started working in road service. And just a conductor, I, I like to tell people, basically, the engineer makes the train go and stop, and the conductor does everything else. So he handles all the paperwork. If there are any switches to be thrown, uh, couplings, any sort of work to be done outside, that's the conductor's job. Okay. All right. So you did some yard work, and then transferred over so what's a typical and this is a broad base whether you're an engineer or a conductor what is a typical shift or what's called a work day well on the yard you'll you'll come into work and you'll you'll take over for uh, the previous shift's crew um you'll you'll get your orders from the yard master to find out what they need done start going to work it's it's pretty routine so, you know, you'll be doing the same thing day in and day out. So, basically, as soon as you show up, you're ready to go. Uh, on the road, you come into work at whatever hour they happen to call you. Uh, you'll get engines, take them out of the uh, locomotive shop, go couple to the train, do any work that needs to be done. There's occasionally bad orders or other switching that has to be done in the yard. And then the conductor will sit and ride until you get to the other end of the road, unless there there may be intermediate stops where you have to pick up and set off cars. The, the conductor's main job at that point is to keep the engineer alert and make sure he's aware of any signals and any other situations he needs to, you know, that he'll need to control the train for. And then, then at the end of the road, the conductor gets off and breaks the train down as necessary, go to the hotel and start the whole process in reverse. Okay, so in the yard, when you're doing that, you know, yard master gives you a list. So you may be taking either breaking apart big cuts of cars or doing assembly to what will be eventually a train. Right. Linwood is a hump yard, 
So if you work the hump, you'll ba- you'll take engines behind the uh, behind a cut of cars. It could be I've had up 150 or 160 cars at a time, and you'll just start humping them into various tracks. Um, there's also the the pullout assignments. Get those cars, pull them out of the various tracks, and build them into the outbound trains. All right, fascinating. Now, now you're conducting uh, on a road assignment. What do you do? How do you progress to be considered or promoted to an engineer? What's that process like? Well, it's uh, it's strictly based on seniority. Okay. And uh, back in the 80s, the uh, unions made an agreement that everybody would have to be uh, qualified as an engineer. So everybody hired after that date, in seniority order, when their turn came, they would go to engineer school. So my it took me seven years just because they hired quite a few people ahead of me, and then they didn't need any engineers for a long time. Okay. But uh, 2004, my turn came. Back to Atlanta I went and started training as an engineer. How long was that process? School itself is a month, and then the the on-the-job training takes, depending on location and engineer, it's, it could be six to eight months. I think mine was right at eight. What's your typical run for you now? You're assigned to a district, right? I am. I'm on the uh, what's called the Danville District. I work between Linwood, North Carolina, and either Raleigh or Lynchburg or Roanoke, Virginia. And it's very much the same as, as the, of course, the conductors. I'm right there beside them working together. Uh, the difference is I'm on the engine the whole time, going back and forth as needed. Are there different classes still with trains like locals or, for lack of a better example, uh, container, trailer train type movement? Well, we we do have, we have locals. Uh, some divisions have... Fast freight and slow freight spelled out, you know, that, that certain crews will only work fast freight or slow freight. We, locally, we don't do that. We'll have locals that, that do, that, that work whatever industries need to be done. Uh, then we just have pools based on location. So, for example, we have a pool that runs between Linwood and Lynchburg. And there are uh, intermodal trains, which we, we call them pig trains, sort of for piggyback. Um, but we'll, you might have a piggyback train today, and you might come back on a slow freight. Okay. So you're running a, a gamut of Exactly. Of that. Okay. Exactly. That's cool. And Amtrak is separate, right? Their engineers are employees of Amtrak. Correct. They, they run on our territory and follow our rules, but they are their own uh, separate employees. Okay. All right. Well, that's fascinating. And the town I grew up in, in West Virginia was a C&O town, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. at the end of where West Virginia goes over the Big Sandy River into uh, becomes Kentucky, there's all these coal docks running from Huntington down to Cerrito Canova that load the barges. Lisa did. I don't know if they haven't been back there in a long time, but the swimming pool that Dad's company paid for the, you know, the dues to so that we went, was down in Cerrito Canova. And the Norfolk Western back then came out of the, you know, Bluefield uh, coal fields. And they had their own yard, would 
take the coal cars and shunt them into the various coal loaders. And I can remember in like 1958-59 that this one track lead cut the Dreamland swimming pool parking lot in, in half. And it, they were still using 060s, 080 steam. Right. And, you know, we'd go there and sometimes you waited for the train to drag all these covered hoppers or these coal cars through. And I'd always drag my feet. Dad, I want to watch the train. <laughs> you know, because it was, by then, CNO was dieselized in Huntington. There was no more steam there. But that was, uh, that was my exposure to the Norfolk Western way back when. Well, that's fascinating. So you've got a perspective then of working uh, through a real railroad. Never have any runaway train uh, events or anything like that, like the movie, Unstoppable? Well, I have, actually. Is that something you can tell us about without uh, getting in trouble or anything? I can. Um, it, it's not quite as dramatic as the movie. Yeah. The, the, the real event that that situation, that movie is based on wasn't as dramatic as the movie. But... <laughs> Um, I, it's, I was a, a conductor and I was on train late, late in the winter. Um, it was very cold. I think we had four feet of snow in Raleigh, which is extremely unusual for this area. They ran a train that was very long and very heavy and had fairly poor power. And when we're coming into Raleigh, there's a fairly steep hill that comes right into downtown, right through uh, NC State University. We're coming down that hill, and our brakes froze. What had happened is there was so much snow and ice and everything on the rails that it, the wheels were throwing ice onto the brake shoes. So the bottom of the hill is a, is a diamond and a 10-mile-per-hour curve. When we were approaching the diamond, as we topped the hill, the engineer applied the brake, and it did nothing. He applied more brake and still had nothing. About 30 car lengths away from the diamond, he just put the train in emergency, and it kept accelerating. We hit the curve at 40 miles an hour. Wow. To this day, none of us quite know how we survived the experience. How you stayed on the on the rails? Well, not only how we stayed on the rails, but how we managed to survive, because, of course, we're at the bottom of a hill with 15,000 tons of freight, uh, I remember the, the, the head, about 15 cars, were loaded wood chips, and these things are, you know, 22 feet tall and 80 feet long. I don't know how they stayed up, because the curve is a very, very sharp curve. I remember the yardmaster in Raleigh telling me he heard us coming, and he had picked up the phone and dialed 9-1, and he was waiting to hear the boom to hit the other one. <laughs> so... That's probably the one of the most frightening experiences I've ever had, and certainly hope to not repeat it again. Yeah, I would, I would say so. When I was in at uh, Marshall University, one of my childhood buddies who was there too worked for the CNO, and he was a conductor on a road crew. But he had enough seniority; they did mostly just what you called like the slow freight. Right. One of the favorite runs, they would leave Huntington and go out to just West Huntington. At the time, there was a what we would call a microbrewery out there. Right. It's called Basenmeyer Brewery, and they would take you know covered hoppers out there and tank cars and whatever. 
and they would get to a spot within the yard complex at this brewery where there was no radio communication. And they found their way into the tap room <laughs> where they had, you could sample beer. And I went, well, you know, I'm going to presume, you know, Donnie, you're not supposed to do that. And yeah, because we're just sitting around the student center, you know, sipping coffee, waiting for the next class. And he goes, well, he said, we didn't get snockered or anything. He said, we just go in and, you know, have ourselves a, a short beer and then come back up. He said, although one day he said we had that GP9 uh, a little bit above 80 on the main line heading back into Huntington. And I went, I don't think the speed limit's that high through there, is it? He said, no. He said, but it's long and straight. And so, yeah, yeah, sometimes you look back and go, I am just so glad to be alive. <laughs> yes. Okay. Now, let's shift gears. Let's get back to the, your uh, DNW. All right. So, you know, how big a space you got? I mean, I have a, just a spare bedroom. It's roughly 11 by 13 feet. Okay, but that's good size. That's good size. Okay. And you're doing HO? I am. HO is a whole lot easier when it comes to uh, switching and scratch building and kit bashing, I, I've found. Okay. Oh, I can only imagine. Now, how have you been building you doing l girder you're doing uh dominoes well my my bench work is is fairly basic it's two by fours screwed to the wall and just a, a heavy box frame from there um i started with a, a flat top and, and cut it out cookie cutter style for uh, risers there's very little flat track on the layout unfortunately okay so you're Got a lot of grades and I, I do, I do. I if I had to do again, I would have built the thing flat. However, there was uh, there were two locations where I had to have tracks crossing over each other. Um, the only way to get around it would be to flip the track plans around and, and make curves too tight, and it wasn't prototypical the way I wanted it. So I, I, I accepted the grades, and it keeps my train short, which turns out to be quite prototypical. Okay, now you. You're handling, you're putting in uh, flex track. How are you doing that? Most of my track is um, Atlas Code 83, uh, turnouts, flex track. Uh, the the original yard that I had started with was a little switching layout, one foot by eight foot. That's all uh, Shinohara turnouts, Code 70, and uh, microengineering flex track. If, if I were doing it again or as I redo this stuff because I've it's not working the way I'd like. I think I'm going to go back and hand lay turnouts. I, I've, okay. I've hand laid them before, and I find it easier to make my own than it is to fix the problems with the commercial ones. Okay. Do you just what use a a CV type uh, kit, fast tracks, or what do you do there? I've never used any of the kits. I've just grabbed some rail, uh, file it, build my uh, build my uh, turnout, and then use wooden ties. Okay. Wow, you are you are the man. Well, again, it, about any point jigs or anything, you're just eyeballing and filing. Well, it, it, I, I use what I started doing because I was working in HON3, and again, I couldn't afford the nice stuff. Um, I would take a piece of flex track, lay it where I wanted one route to go, take take a piece of paper and, and pin it down, and use a crayon to rub across the top. 
flip the paper up, bend the flex track in the other route, and put it back, and that was my hand-drawn jig. And I would just make my rails fit whatever the uh, the pattern on the on the paper was. Okay. Now, were you, yes, buying raw rail, or were you disassembling and cutting up uh, flex track to get the rail you needed? I was buying raw. At that time in, in uh, HON3, I was working in microengineering code 55. So I would just buy a bulk pack of rail and go from there. All right, yeah, I'm a big fan of microengineering. I do use all their raw rail for my Code 83 stuff. I like their product. Uh, they even make some nice flex track. I was looking at a piece at the hobby shop the other day, and it, I didn't know they did this. Both rails float. This was a piece of Code 70 microengineering, and it's done like the Shinohara uh, Code 100, where both rails actually float in there, so it, when you bend it in shape, it, it holds a shape. It doesn't try and straighten out. It does, which is very handy, especially when it comes to doing things like uh, handling turnouts and using it to make a jig. Yeah. Uh, I also have a piece of microengineering track that I've carefully bent to a 24-inch radius curve, and that's my template when I'm handling track now. It, if, if I can lay that thing on top of whatever I've just laid, and, and my curve is broader than that, I'm good. If it's sharper than that, I know I have a problem. Um, one thing about microengineering and handling turnouts especially, I have family or had family in St. Louis, and microengineering is right down the road. Yeah, they're down in Fenton. I found out I'd ordered uh, a Wheelworks Mack truck, and I found out microengineering owned Wheelworks, and I'd never got my truck because they were always out of production. So I one time I just called them up and drove down there to visit them. The owner of Microengineering took me around the factory, showed me all all the various machines, sold me the truck that he wanted that I wanted because it turns out they have them. They just had to make enough to fill an order for Walters before they would ship them. So of course Walters said they were out of stock and they're sitting there on the shelf in Fenton the whole time. Um, but in the process, he showed me the. Uh, microengineering turnouts that they make, and they have a little cast metal frog. And I, I was looking at them saying, I wish you would sell those. I could use those. The frogs are the hardest part to make. He just reaches into the bin, scoops them up, says, how many do you want? says, here you go, a quarter apiece, help yourself. I still have those frogs. I never ended up using them, but I hate to part with them. It's... Uh... You get some of the small companies like that, especially that are just privately held, and it's a family business, and the people are are great. I had some parts that I purchased. I was detailing some uh, E-units, and I was having a heck of a time getting these very fragile parts off the sprue, and I had sprue cutters. So I just looked up the company, emailed them, and I said, you need a more compliant or pliant, you know, resin. I said, here's what's happening with this. And so about a week later, I get an email from another company who was actually molding the parts for the first guy. And the guy said, hey, I'm very sorry you're having trouble. He said, tell me what it is you want, what you're doing. So I told him which parts it was. A week later, I get a box in the mail from this company. And it's the same uh, icebreaker parts that I was using, but cast in a in a different resin. And he said, "Let me know if these work." 
And, of course, they did. And I was just so impressed by not only the, the one company, but their, their sub-supplier in addressing a concern. So, I mean, and, again, a small company like what you were dealing with there with micro-engineering. That's, that's one of the things I really like about model railroading is that so many of us are, have such specific interests that there, you, there's not a whole lot of room for big manufacturers. And even the big manufacturers aren't really big uh, by global standards. Right. So for most of this stuff, you have a lot of small little mom-and-pop operations. And if you have an issue or if you have a question or a suggestion, you can contact them and actually talk to somebody that knows what they're doing. And they're t- typically very happy to help because it's I find it's almost exclusively model railroaders doing this that you don't find somebody who knows and cares nothing for trains working for most of these companies right yeah it wasn't always that way uh talking with the owner of the hobby shop i go to the other day and he was telling me how one of the major wholesalers has transitioned over time from their salespeople that really weren't hobbyists to now, he said, the guy that I deal with, he says he's an HO modeler. So he said, when I call and ask about it, he said, uh, and it's a younger younger man doing the, the repping now. He goes, he knows exactly what I'm talking about and what the problems are. So, you know, a lot of them, you know, like Walters and stuff, have become very responsive. You ever have to use Walters customer service? The only dealing I've had with them, I, I tried to order some Proto 2000 parts. Mm-hmm. And they were very friendly, but no parts available. <laughs> I had uh, purchased, I think it was three undecorated uh, Bud cars for a train I was creating. And two of them came in without the windows. Of course, they're undecorated and all this stuff's packed loose. But, I mean, these were factory-sealed boxes and stuff. So I just emailed. I said, how can I get these window sets? Because... Uh, laser cut makes them, but good grief, that's tedious work to get them in there. So this guy, I got an email back from a Walter's rep, and he says, here's the office number, call me. And so I did, and he goes, let me. And he was carrying a mobile phone. He was out there, you know, if you've ever been to Walter's, they've got this place where they have all these return kits or, you know, it's kind of like the island of misfit toys <laughs> right area there and he's going okay now what am i looking for and so i told him he said now which version of the car and i can hear him rattling through parts he said i found one and he said look he said i'm just going to send you the 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 shell and the two window strips with it and i mean i was just blown away so you know walters is a, a huge company but they've also got very dedicated uh sales so okay we have Really uh, digressed here. <laughs> sure. Uh, how much of uh, you've got a your layout design? This new one is point to point, right? It is. Okay. Are you able to shuffle around cars on it? Have you progressed to that point yet, or not? Well, yes and no. Uh, in theory, I can and I have. However, my motive power interests. I, I like steam, and I, I'm trying to model Denver Western fairly accurately, 
which means that all of my engines are in pieces awaiting me to sit down and build the silly things. <laughs> so um, I, I have operated the layout. It's There's very little scenery on it, but all the track work is in place. Uh, I, I've reached the point now that the reason I haven't done any more scenery work is I need to find all the little niggling problems. And that, oh, okay, the that, track work. Okay. Right, all the, all the places where the turnouts are not quite right and all the places where my track work wasn't quite good enough uh, and modeling mostly steam, steam engines tend to be a little more finicky on their uh, track. So Okay. So now, are you going to DCC on this? I am. I, I've just – my first experience with DCC, I knew I wanted sound, so I went – I said, well, I've got to do DCC because that's the best sound I've heard. And I'm, I'm very glad I did, even though I typically would operate this layout by myself – it's a very short point-to-point, -point, and I might operate at most two locomotives on the layout. Uh, I'm, I've, I've had it, and I've started to experience it, and I'm really happy I did. Okay. Whose system did you are you using? Just the cheapest I could get, a Digitrax Zephyr. Okay. Nothing wrong with Digitrax. <laughs> no, okay. I, I heard that they were – Yeah, you know, I, I did my research and found that a lot of folks were recommending Digitrax as the, the gold standard. Uh, if you wanted to get into modular systems or anything like that. And I've mm -hmm. also had an interest in modular layouts. So I said, well, I'll, I'll just go ahead and invest in Digitrax from the beginning. Okay. Now, so do you think you ever get to the point of maybe having a couple friends over and doing an op session of, like, you know, switching challenges and stuff? Uh, definitely. Um, I have one good friend, the guy that, that suggested I model the Danville and Western. Uh, he and I trade off uh, work sessions, operating sessions. I'll go over to his house, and his layout is much more finished, so I'll, I'll operate on his. He'll come over and help me find problems on, with mine. But uh, definitely I, I, I'm planning, once I get the layout a little more in, in a finished and operating condition, I need to come up with a good operating scheme because I've, I've got all the old Danville and Western uh, timetables and schedules and so forth, try to really build something prototypical out of that. Okay, and your time period then, what are you? Roughly 1940, although I have been tended to bounce around as far back as the late teens, early 20s, and as far forward as the mid-50s, Okay. Just depending on what, what equipment I put on the layout that day. Okay, I understand how that works. Um, I had a 70 Mac, and I had a... Uh, Exactly, a Versa pack behind it. Yeah, and one of the guys going, they didn't coexist. And I said, hey, it's my railroad. They coexist right at the same time. It's all pretend. Um, all right, now, reading the article on Model Railroad this month, and we've touched on some of those issues because a lot of what you're doing requires you to, especially for the accuracy you're attempting to achieve, is you had to become a, a scratch builder. I did, and it's interesting, even with my interest in Southern Railway, mm -hmm. as large as Southern is, certainly relative to Danville Western, there's very little available even for Southern, and I knew I wanted a Southern engine. I got in some discussions and debates about using the old Bachman Spectrum 280, mm -hmm. and I said it's not really right for Southern. So I decided to prove how wrong it was 
by building one that was right and putting it beside it. Um, and I just, what originally had got me started, I had this, this Spectrum engine, and I wanted to modif modify it into a fairly accurate southern engine, which with some work, it can be made into a different, uh, fairly small class of southern engines. So I stripped it down. I had nothing but a bare boiler. I patched all the holes, uh, made new domes, new smoke box, running boards, and the works for it. And I realized, I looked at it and realized, if I can make a tube, I've already, I'm nine-tenths away toward a scratch-built engine. So for my next project, I just said, well, let's see if I can make the tube. And I did. Okay. Yeah, reading the, uh, I liked your just take no prisoners, kind of like, <laughs> okay, this is a manufacturing process, so how do I make this work? How would you stumble on, and maybe a poor choice of words, but I thought it was quite ingenious to microwave the what's going to become your boiler to get it to uh, keep its shape. Well, I knew that styrene could be heat-formed. Mm -hmm. Um and I've seen plenty of, of heat-formed, you know, vacuum-formed uh, styrene canopies for aircraft and, 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 and just even just styrene parts. I said, well, if it can be heat-formed, then I can heat-form it. So I just said, well, let's try an experiment. I wrapped some around a form, and I wanted, I needed a way to apply heat evenly. And I said, well, boiling water is hot enough. Easiest way to get boiling water without getting it too hot is to put it in the microwave. That because I knew that would only heat the the water itself and not the plastic, so I had no no risk of melting my plastic like I would on the stove. Okay. And I said, "Well, let's try it," and it worked. Amazing. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and then everything. Yeah, I noticed how accurate, like the saddles for the domes, like your steam dome, sand dome. Right. For your stack, I mean, it just looked as if they'd been molded. Believe it or not, those, I, I just, they're thin enough that I, I kind of bent them to shape over, a, you know, rolled them over a form to give the siren a bit of a curve and glued them in place and let the, let the, uh, the solvent just soften the plastic enough it stayed put. So they are, in fact, formed to the boiler because they're glued to it. Well, by golly, that looks good. How much time do you figure uh, you'll have invested in the locomotive you're building for the article? And that's done. About how many man hours are you going to have invested in that? That's really hard to estimate. I can tell you that start to finish it took me a year. Um, that's working spare time. And, of course, I was working on the text and, and uh, photographs at the same time. Actual modeling time, it, it's, I would estimate several hundred man hours. Wow. Okay. But I really, I really don't know, um, because so much of it was spent even not at the workbench, but I would be sitting there thinking, okay, now how am I going to make this part? And I would be going down the tracks at work thinking, okay, now how am I going to make those rods? And I'd come up with five different designs for rods or crossheads or you name it. And when I would I would finally settle on one that, that I thought would work, and I'd go home and try it. Most of the time it worked. Sometimes it didn't, and I'd repeat the process. Okay. Yeah, I mean, 
the creative time when we let our uh, brain wander to, you know, to try out these things. And you're using Bachman uh, mechanisms, correct? No, that one is an IHC uh, 280 chassis. I tend to use whatever. I like a lot of the Bachman mechanisms, even though they're fairly cheap um, and somewhat unreliable, <laughs> they can be repaired. Okay. Uh, one of the big issues with the Bachmans is that the wheels tend to fall off because they use the split axle design. My thought is I can glue the silly things on and they won't fall off again. Um, so, you know, motors and gears are another problem. I can put better motors and gears in them. I look for, uh, on a commercial chassis, I'm primarily looking for the quality of the wheels and the the overall dimensions. So, for example, the old Bachman Redding 280 that you, you see all over the place, and it wasn't a really popular or, or good quality model, the wheels on it are actually quite beautiful. So put those on a better model, and off you go. Yeah, I've seen a lot of things like that where the overall model is kind of like so-so, but you go, wow, these people do this part very, very well. I, I am... Always looking for the, uh, the old Bachman, old-time uh, Americans, because even though nine-tenths of the model is junk, it runs poorly, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, the drivers are 57-inch HO scale drivers with no counterweights. Those That diameter driver is very hard to find, and when you do find it, anywhere else it's got a crescent counterweight on it. So many of the engines I model had the old arc style, you know, half of a circle uh, counterweight that there's no way to modify from one to the other. Well, those Bachman engines had those drivers that you can put whatever weight you want on it. So I've started collecting the things whenever I can find them cheaply just for the wheels. Where do you, where do you go foraging for your parts, eBay? Primarily eBay, uh, swap meets. Sometimes, you know, I'll talk to modelers and they'll say, well, I've got one of those things sitting in, in the toy box that I haven't used since I was a kid. It doesn't run. Well, hang on, I'll give you 10 bucks for it. <laughs> yeah, all ears. <laughs> it, it also turns out Bachman will sell those, those drivers. So that's, that's my latest source. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good. Because uh, some locomotives, uh, the manufacturers, there was a posting on HO, what used to be HO yard sale, but it's called something else now. A guy was looking for handrail sets for a specific Cotto HO locomotive. And when you go to the Cotto website, you know, the logical things are just always out of stock. You know, it's like they make enough to make their... Uh, production runs of locomotives, and it's sometimes just by accident that they've got extra number boards or right. things left over. I wish, wish they would. And Aether, the same thing. Horizon, if they would, you know, hey, there's people out there that break things, and once in a while we need to replace them. Well, you know, and on that subject, I have to say I called Athern uh, after they purchased um, uh, Roundhouse. Mm -hmm. And they, they re-released their old-time 280. 
I bought one and flipped it over and looked at the tender trucks, and I said, these are the most beautiful trucks I've ever seen. They they pick up out of all wheels. They've, they're already wired. They're they're a nice arch bar truck. Uh-huh. Really nice. I said, I want some of those. So I called them, called the parts department, and talked to the guy. He went back on the shelf and found a bunch and sold them to me. Um, and, and I could never replicate what they have done as cleanly. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's very nice when they they will actually sell you parts. Um, Walters, when I I wanted some uh, locomotive draw bars, they won't. They've only got a, enough stock to repair models that already exist. They won't sell their parts. Just you know, you want to build your own. Here you go. Okay. So, but yes, I I know what you mean. You wish they would just make the parts sometimes. Yeah, or at least in a let's uh, do an overrun of. 200 pieces or something. And, of course, you know, then it becomes a logistics nightmare for them. Is, oh, sure. You know, handling them, storing them, and then facilitating people like us buying them from them. So I understand it's not a clear-cut answer. It would just be nice if, you know, some of this stuff were available. Yeah. Uh, okay. Now, it's the same thing. Do you run into the same issues on – the freight cars? Do you have to find yourself, you know, scratch building freight cars? Well, yes and no. Um, when I have found information on Danville Western freight cars, it's so incomplete that it sort of leaves me sitting here saying, "Well, what do I do?" Um, for the most part, I've been—I uh, use old uh, model die casting box cars. Old time, you know, Bachman, uh, old time equipment. Whatever I can get my hands on, if it fits the dimensions, which is the only, I'll have, you know, overall length. Maybe the only dimension I have. Mm-hmm. So if it's close enough, or if I can modify it to be close enough, I'll go with that. Um, when I find better drawings, for example, the Danville Western Caboose, the only one that I've found any real information on, is a, is a C&O prototype that nobody has made. And I started kitbashing one and thought it was good until I found drawings, and I've, now I'm going to probably end up scratch building one. So my, my models continue to improve as my research goes on. Okay. That I must you know, give uh, you and some of the other people that I've had the uh, opportunity to talk to on podcast. I mean, they're almost fanatical, you know, pursuit of accuracy and in the detailing and dimensions where, you know, I could walk into your model railroad and look at uh, one of your locomotives and not realize that there was a dimensional discrepancy. I would look at paint and detail and does it run well. Uh, But you guys that go after the nth degree of detail, I mean, I'm always amazed that – you know, in a good way, an admiration for the pursuit of it. Like Alan at the hobby shop, he's won awards in his, he belongs to one of the large model railroad clubs here in the Phoenix area, for his dining place settings, the dining car place settings with simulated food. Now, this is H.O. Right. And he's telling me, or one of his buddies is telling me about this. I said, wait a minute. He's doing place settings on an HO scale 
dining car and he's simulating food. And he goes, yep, he's, they've had contests and he's won awards. I'm going, I can't even see inside the windows to the people. How are you seeing the food? Uh, <laughs> One of the things I've found, and it's a blessing and a curse, I suppose. Yeah. But because I have an interest in history, and, and I also, as just as a railroader and as a rail fan, I like to learn about the history of, of the territory that I work on. Yeah. So I started researching, and I found the more I know about a subject, the more discrepancies bother me. So when I knew nothing, anything would, would be fine. Uh, when I was, uh, before I started working for the, the railroad, and Athern, uh, ready to run, or, or at the time you just shake the box, boxcar was fine. I had no problem with it. Well, when I started learning that the steel steps are six inches thick and the grab irons are, you know, eight inches thick, and, and, and I started comparing that to the things I saw and worked with every day, it bothered me to the point that I could no longer accept it. Um, so, I, I am a self-described rivet counter. I, in uh, preparing drawings for the, the engine I scratch built, I sat and stared at photographs of, uh, of cabs and tenders, being, of course, where most of the rivets hide. And I'd, I would literally sit there and count them. And then I would sit down on the computer and say, okay, I need 627 rivets in this space. So I divide the, the you know, 627 into the space I had. Okay, that's my rivet spacing. Are you making the rivet? Are you doing the embossing? Are you buying the decals? How are you doing your rivets? All of the above. Uh, I started, I, I, one time I had uh, the uh, in, uh, Northwest Short Line Sensor Press Riveter. I never liked it. It just, it never worked well enough for me. It was more trouble than it was worth. So when I started building this model, I tried an experiment. I said, well, let's see if I can do this better. I printed my drawings out, and I had every rivet marked. And I would just take a, um, a pin vise with a very small nail, just sharpened to a point, and I'd press it through the drawing, through a sheet of 5,000 brass, and emboss the rivet. And I actually found that with a straight edge and a little patience, I could make a better row of rivets. And certainly once it got to the staggered patterns, and, and odd shapes, it was so much easier to just emboss every rivet individually. Uh, I have since tried using the um, rivet decals. I really like those. Those are very nice. Although it, it, it would, you would think, well, the, the decals are so much faster and easier than individual rivets. They, I found they actually took just as much time. It's just the the, the long rows are a little easier to do the individual rivets become a real problem. Oh, okay. So they look better, um, but I, I've never had good luck with any kind of decal stripe, and essentially what these are is a very fine stripe. And you have to get it on perfectly evenly, and, of course, in the process you run the risk of breaking the strip, and then you have to get it put back together just so. So I, I do really like them, and I will definitely be using them more often. But it, it's sort of, the time investment is about the same. 
Who are some of the companies that make rivet decals? The only two I know of are Archer and Micromark. Um, Archer, I think, had them first. Uh, they're fairly local to me. Uh, I remember hearing people talk about them. They're mostly military models. But they started making rivets, and a few model railroaders found them and said, this is great. Uh, and then Micromark picked up on it, and, of course, now they're selling them. I've used the Archer. I've not, I have a sheet of Micromark waiting for my next project. Okay. Now, do they have relief to them, or is it just a two-dimensional representation? It, it is an actual three-dimensional rivet head. Okay, so they're using an ink or something like that? It, it's, a, it's a resin, and, and that's part of the reason that so few people are doing them and why they cost so much is they're using a resin printer. Oh, okay. So it's an actual plastic rivet head printed onto decal uh, film. All right, well, I would imagine that does look good when you're done. Um, I don't know which month it will be. One of the the, the four months of um, of the scratch building articles. Mm -hmm. Joe asked me to do a sidebar scratch building a styrene cab instead of brass. Okay. Uh, most people prefer working styrene, and also to comment on rivet decals versus embossed rivets. So they are whenever the 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 cab construction comes up, probably I'm going to say August if I had to guess. Um, that that should be in there describing both the, the, the construction of the cab out of siren and also describing all of the you know the differences and, and showing just what those decals look like going on. Okay, well I'll look forward to that then. How many so there's three more installments coming? Yes. Okay. Well I know it's interesting reading. And even though I'm not, just because, not going to have need to do it, I was just fascinated by the process you went through to do it. Things like that just interest me, even if I don't have any application for it. I'm, just, I'm a manufacturing guy, so watching someone develop an executed process, I, it just keeps me occupied and entertained. Sure, and, and I've always found that, that good modeling – is interesting regardless of the subject. I, I've got a um, one of the articles in this month's Railroad Model Craftsman describes building these epic trash containers. Yes, well, I have no need for you know articulated trash container cars. They're about sixty years too late for my era. But the process of building these things is fascinating, and I'm I really enjoy reading about it. So. One of the things I wanted to, wanted to touch on with scratch building, I found, I guess it's my, my philosophy, if you will, on, on scratch building things. I go around and I look at whatever it is I want to build. Instead of seeing a steam locomotive, I'll see a collection of, there's a flat surface here. Here's a cylinder over there. Here's a box over here. And, and I break it down mentally into different shapes. So, for example, when I wanted to build the, the sand dome on on the locomotive, I was looking at it. I said, okay, how would I? What shape do I have there? I said, well, basically, I have a cylinder with a curved flat base and a, and radius top. So I took a piece of styrene to make a flat base, and then I took a piece of tube to make the cylinder, glued a cap on it, and sanded the uh, radius around the edge. And so you have this complex shape that's very hard to describe 
certainly uh, mathematically or you know in any sort of rigid format. But you look at it and say, oh, well, that's I see what that is. That that's a, a basic shape there. I can make that. So if if, if somebody takes that approach. Almost anything is fairly easy to build. No, I I think it's I follow that logic. All right, because you mentioned in your article the the investment needed if you were going to scratch build with say like brass or something besides styrene with the lays and all that you need, and you did just the opposite. I could make this out of a yeah more manufacturing friendly material. And sure. Break it down into doable shapes, not looking at the entire elephant, but you know, okay, here's here's elephant feet, here's an elephant trunk, just breaking down the parts. Very good. And, and I, I, I should say, um, working in brass, you could, in theory, do the same thing. You know, use use files and and basic shapes, and the thing is, the material itself is so much harder that it takes a lot more force to just more work to, to make the shape. The, the nice thing about styrene is it's soft and it's very easy to work with. You know, that's why most people, if they're working in, in the metals, they're investing in power tools. Well, I don't yeah. really have the money or the space to do that, so I had to find a, a slightly simpler, you know, easier to work medium. And it worked out. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that that struck me, I'm looking at all of these models coming out today. At, at what I consider brass prices, because I came into the hobby in the in the 80s, seeing these brass engines for a hundred dollars, thinking that's outrageous. Yeah. Um, and of course now I'm, I started seeing them going three, four, five hundred dollars. Well, now I'm seeing these plastic models come out for the same price. I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. If you can make a plastic model that is the same quality or better than brass, that looks as good or better than brass, why should I scratch build in brass? It's the traditional medium, but if it works for them, why won't styrene work for me? So I said, well, I'll find out. I'll try it. And at the end of the day, when your model is done and it's painted and it's weathered, and it's sitting there, no one's going to know what the substrate is. Exactly. It's the finished product that, that matters. Now, I agree 100%. There are some breathtaking prices out there on some of the uh, non-plastic product. Even some of the plastic stuff I've seen. I saw a price on an MTH Big Boy, HO Big Boy, for $1,000. Sure. I was blown away. I had no idea they were that expensive. You know, part of the what drove this particular model, the only accurate Southern Railway K-class consolidation that has ever been made in HO scale. Overland released one, and I guess it was back in the 80s or early 90s. They're not the typical brass mechanism. They don't run really well. They need some work. Uh, they're, they're not bad, but they're not great. The, the bodywork itself is beautiful. Thing is, they're going on eBay if you can find them for anywhere three to five hundred dollars. More if they've actually been modified to work. 
Okay. Well, I can't afford even you know a roster of four or five locomotives when I'm having to pay five hundred dollars a piece for them. Of course, that's before you go modifying to put DCC decoders and so forth. Yeah, you know, if I'm going to invest that kind of money, I'm going to put a good decoder in it. Yes. Well, that's at least another hundred dollars. Uh, yeah, it's true. I simply couldn't afford it, and I said, "Well, I don't see any reason why I can't try to build one." I think I've estimated somewhere in the range of two hundred and fifty dollars, counting the tsunami, the, to to build that locomotive. Okay, and then you compare that to a. You know, for a value equation, like he said, five, six hundred bucks to buy one that you may have to turn around and rework anyway. Exactly. I'm just going to say there's a lot of value in what you're doing there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I ended up having to do a lot of work to the IHC chassis that I used. But when I only paid $20 for it, I I expected that, and I really didn't mind if I broke it. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, and that's something else that that I found when I started scratch building things. I didn't care if I broke something because if I built one, if I made the boiler mm-hmm. and, and I didn't get it right or if I cut a hole in the wrong place, number one, I could repair it. But number two, I made the first one, I could make a second one. And when I had a couple dollars worth of styrene invested, there was no great loss in making another. So I have I found I, I started working on a, a large scale locomotive just off and on. I found that I was making two. The first one was sort of a deformed locomotive and you know, which was never got beyond a, a collection of parts. The second one is round two, I learned from my mistakes this one's nice. So I really was not afraid to make mistakes, and I think that's important. That's that's a good mental attitude for it. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, if you're going to do it, you can't be afraid of what you're doing. No, and, and you have to be. You know, the only the only time I started being afraid of making a mistake was when I started getting the the final details done. Because at that point, I had a year's worth of work invested. Even though I didn't have a lot of money in it, there was so much time invested that I really didn't want to lose it. But at that point, I already had the main things finished. The the parts that I could really make big mistakes on were already done. That's true. Okay, well, it's got to be fun or it's not a hobby, it's work. (laughs) Exactly. The whole reason for doing this was hope to, to inspire somebody to say, you know what, I could do that. Because I've heard some people saying, oh, scratch building is a dying hobby. You know, I can't do that. I don't have the skills for that. This is the first locomotive I'd ever scratch built. I sat down, and I didn't have the skills to do it. I just figured if somebody else can figure it out, I can figure it out. It started out as a discussion, well, you know, which mm-hmm. which locomotive is most like this model? And I wanted to prove that, you know, I wanted to demonstrate physically what the thing looked like. But beyond that, I started documenting everything I did because I, I wanted to prove to people that it's doable. And I also wanted to save somebody the effort because when I built this thing, 
probably three-quarters of the time invested in this model is just what I call brain time, just just brainstorming, thinking, how am I going to solve this problem? And a lot of times, I go into it somewhat in the, in the article, uh, that you know, there's two ways to approach it. One, you can just try it and see what happens, and when you, when you make the mistake on the first one, you know what not to do. You can also sit there and, and think through different things on, on your, just in, in your mind, in your free time, and, and try to solve that problem. But at the end of the day, just having the confidence, there is a solution. There, I will figure out how to do this. I can solve this problem. I can make this work. I can, I can build that part. There, there's got to be a way to do it. You, just, just to have that confidence is so important. That you know, it, it's not about knowing the right answer. It's about knowing that there is a right answer. Your article has been a very, uh, very good eye opener to this is doable. This is doable. Break it down to its components and tackle them one at a time. All right. So I want to thank my uh, guest today, Ken Rickman. Uh, stay tuned for the following parts of the article. And as Ken has pointed out, you can do this stuff. You need a specific locomotive. You can do this. So, Ken, thank you very much for your time today. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm.